Good afternoon. Welcome to the All Souls Forum. Today's presentation, 40 Years of Fighting Fascism and What the Future Holds, with David Berghardt, was recorded at All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church, Kansas City, Missouri, on December 3, 2023. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Forum at All Souls. My name is Alex Westerfeld. I'm proud to represent the Forum Committee. It's a group of dedicated volunteers who for 80 years have planned these presentations and speakers. So welcome here this morning. Um, we will have um, our speaker present for about 30 minutes, take a brief break, and then after that we have a Q&A. Um, if you have a cell phone, please put that on silent. Today's speaker is Devin Burkhart. He is president of the Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights, and he coordinates their Seattle office. He has researched, written, and organized virtually all facets of con on virtually all facets of contemporary white nationalism since 1992. He's internationally recognized for this effort. So, this morning, he'll talk about 40 years of fighting fascism and what the future holds. Please welcome Evan. Good morning, everyone. Come on, we can do that a little bit. I, I know it's early, but come on. Good morning. That's much better. It is so great to be with you here today. Thank you all for coming. I know many of you were here uh, yesterday, last night, when we celebrated the 40th anniversary of the Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights. I know the name is a mouthful. Even some of our board members can't remember it properly. But what's important is the work that the Institute has done over the past 40 years in terms of working to roll back the far right in their efforts to try to impact human rights and democracy writ large. Um, today, what I wanted to do is talk with you a bit more about IRHR's 40 years of fighting fascism and really what the future holds for us. For those unfamiliar with the Institute, our core mission is to use data to defend democracy and to defeat the far right. My name is Devin Burkhart, and I have the honor of being the new director of the Institute, uh, and I'm pleased to have several of our board members in here today, including IRIHR's founder, Leonard Zeskin. While I am generally loath to talk about myself, uh, in many ways, my story parallels that of the Institute. Uh, my first year of understanding of the grave, real threat posed by white supremacists came in 1983. That was the same year the Institute was formed. That same year, when I grew up, I grew up in Spokane, Washington, a stone's throw away from the Aryan Nations compound. And so this was, uh, this was very much real to me uh, and impacted my, my daily life starting in 1993. In that year, while I was still in high school, believe it or not, I happened to come across a, a protest in downtown Spokane um, led by a man named Robert Matthews. Matthews was the head of a group that would later become known as the Order, a neo-Nazi terror group which robbed banks, uh, robbed an armored car for over $3.2 million, killed a Missouri state trooper 
and the Jewish talk show host in Denver before finally ending in a fire firefight in Washington State. Um, my first incidence of this was seeing him protest in a in a park in down in downtown in my community. And from that moment, it was etched indelibly in my mind as something that was key. That was the same year the institute was formed, and little did I know that uh, Lenny and others in the organization uh, were working diligently to fight back against this, to build uh, human rights task forces and groups to counter the work uh, that, that they were doing in local communities and to build those really effective bulwarks against bigotry. So somehow I ended up having that uh, seared into my brain from those early days. And yet I didn't know it would become, become my path for many years to come. Also during this period, it was a period where my family was going through some difficulties. Uh, I come from a, a North Dakota farm family, uh, and many say I come to my anti-fascism in the old school way. My uncle Pete uh, was a 17-year-old farm boy from North Dakota who went off to fight in World War II and stormed the beaches at Normandy. He was at Omaha Beach. And so those things are indelibly etched into who I am and part of our family's history. Uh, and so understanding that and understanding the, the importance and the impact that it was having on rural communities, uh, little did I know that during the same time that my family was having uh, struggles in North Dakota on their family farm that so many others were as well. In fact, it was in the middle of the farm crisis where the Institute really began to grow and merge as an important organization taking on the far right as they were working to try to infiltrate um, the far movement. The Institute, in fact, held hundreds and hundreds of events and worked with thousands of farmers across the Midwest, helping not only to help them find ways out of the problems caused by the changes in rural agriculture, but also in working to build those barriers against the far right and trying to infiltrate their efforts and their organizations. It is work that still provides a blueprint for the kind of efforts that we engage in today. For me, however, this work really became full circle in 1992 while attending university. Some, a couple of gentlemen from an organization that Lenny helped train came to where I was going to school and gave a talk about the growth of the far right and the threats that they posed to to democracy and to our communities. I immediately became hooked and got involved. I interned, um, and when the internship was over, I kept showing up. I think at some point they felt bad and decided to start paying me a little something. Uh, not a lot, mind you, but they decided to start paying me a little something. <laughs> yeah. And it uh, it changed my life. Immediately, they sent me off to attend militia meetings and and white power skinhead concerts and Christian coalition gatherings to get a real understanding of what was going on on the ground to really capture and help me understand the full extent of the problem and to dispel a lot of the myths that we have about white nationalists and white supremacists. You know, they're people too, uh, and but they are often working with a very different ideology and that is going to require us to do a lot more work to unpack and to counter in the long term. Little did I know that in those early days, the Institute was one of the first groups on the ground working to spread the word about the militia movement during the 1990s. They held a big national meeting and got people together to start talking about it from a national perspective long before the Oklahoma City bombing happened. They helped publish a, a 
tabloid brochure, which they published uh, nearly 100,000 of them, which they distributed around the Pacific Northwest, disguised to look like right-wing propaganda, but to unpack their ideas about what was going on and who was really behind the New World Order. Um, it was a first-of-its-kind effort, and the Institute was the organization that led those efforts. So I'm really proud of that, and it taught me a lot in those early days. Not long after the Oklahoma City bombing, two years after, in fact, um, I got a call from Lenny asking me to move to Chicago to help start a new organization uh, with friends that they had during the farm crisis. I didn't know anything about it, but I said, sure, why not? Because when Lenny asked me to do something, I always will say yes. And in the course of doing that work, uh, I learned a, a number of different things as we helped build up the Center for New Community from a three-state organization to an important national institution. The Institute was essential in helping us do a couple of things. One is understand the international dimensions of this work. Immediately from that period, um, I began working with our colleagues across Europe in places like the UK, Sweden, Norway, France, and in other places, um, to really build up an international network of organizations sharing intelligence and information about the transatlantic nature of white nationalism as it was emerging during that period, particularly around things like white power music, you know, the using uh, music to not only tell the soundtrack to the white revolution, but also provide a, a significant funding source where they were raising money to fuel their further efforts. Um, it was in the course of that work that I got to work with Stieg Larsson. You probably don't know him from this work, but you probably know him from books like The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. He was a longtime colleague of ours, and he is greatly missed. Uh, and he's one of the many people we've had the honor of working with in the course of doing that international work. In the course of our work with the, at, at the center, we also helped really pioneer a lot of important work around the anti-immigrant movement as it was growing in the early 2000s, from border, border vigilantes like the Minutemen um, to the Beltway think tanks like the Federation for American Immigration Reform. The Institute helped provide us the archival material and the documentation to show the connections of those groups to white nationalists and others and really help unpack a lot of this material. And so it was influential in a lot of that work. Um, but by 2008, as we moved into a new period, I realized that it was time uh, that we were entering a new period and it was time for something new. So I left the center, moved back to Seattle and helped kind of reinvigorate the Institute in, in terms of our forward-facing efforts. And it happened to be at a really opportune time. It was at a time while a lot of people were being triumphalist about the election of the first African-American president, but unaware of the backlash that was looming. Right? There was very little understanding of what was coming next. And the Institute was the organization, I think, well-equipped to see that coming and to try to, to raise alarm bells. In fact, we were the first national organization to really document the, the extent of the Tea Party's role in promoting what Lenny has called a sense of white dispossession. That whites are being dispossessed and they're becoming a dispossessed minority. Uh, and talking about the role that race played. 
Uh, it would later become confirmed by social scientists, like Christopher Parker at the University of Washington and others who found um, you know, important roles of the role of race and racism play in the Tea Party, uh, things we, all, we long knew because of our role in monitoring the far right. It also taught us, importantly, that this was an active, growing social movement that had a core of over a half a million people, had a, a base of supporters of seven to eight million, and at the time, sympathy ranging in public polling between 18 and 43% of the American population. And yet it was hard to get people to move on this subject, to, to, to speak out and stand against it. In fact, I have to admit that I was once in a, in a meeting in D.C. where I sat across the table from folks who told me, why would we want to take on the Tea Party? They're great for our fundraising. And look where we are today. Look of all we've had to experience in the period since then. It is quite remarkable where we've come since then. That's what I want to talk about now. I really want to get into where we are now and begin with this photo. I want to start here with the January 6th insurrection to overturn the 2020 election, because I think it's important that we not forget this day. While there are many who want to erase this from our history and pretend like it never happened, it is important that we not forget. There have also been many important changes in the months since since the sedition convictions of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, not to mention over a thousand arrests. You know, many have called this the beginning of the end of the far right's march from the margins to the mainstream. Rather, to paraphrase Lenny and Churchill, in many respects, the data is telling us at the Institute that rather than this being the beginning of the end, this is the end of the beginning. We, in fact, are entering a dangerous new period of far-right mobilization dedicated to overturning all that we think of when we think about America being a multiracial, pluralistic democracy. While the threats and negative attention have altered, not ended the far-right's trajectory, the far-right was bolstered, in fact, by legions of new recruits during the pandemic, the backlash against the movement for Black Lives, and the insurrection overturned the 2020 election. For example, we tracked over 2.4 million people who joined far-right COVID denial groups during the pandemic. Nearly half of them were women. Both of those trends are atypical and certainly alarming. Now, battle-hardened by fights over masks and mandates, clashes over CRT and drag shows, and the revolt to stop the steal and overturn the election, an unprecedented number of new activists were radicalized in the last period. With the aid of far right, a far-right information ecosystem, that type of radicalization, deep radicalization, seen among movement activists, used to take years is now happening in months. At IRHR, we also track more than a thousand far-right groups across the country, both in real communities and across a plethora of online platforms. This movement presents itself in many ways, in many different styles. The Trojan horse far-right ideology, from tactical vest paramilitarism, to yoga mom conspiracism, to revival tent Christian nationalism, the youthful preppy white nationalism. 
While the packaging may look different, it conceals a remarkably consistent ideological composition. Moreover, far-right ideas once found confined to the furthest fringes are now registering in public opinion polls. A recent Dangers to Democracy poll found that one in five Americans still believe that the 2020 election was stolen. That same poll found significant influence in far-right ideas in the mainstream. For instance, one in eight believe the government is run by a Satan-worshipping group of pedophiles, a staple of anti-Semitic QAnon conspiracists. One in 11 believe that it is justifies, justified to use force to prevent the teaching of CRT in schools. Even though it's not, and even though it's merely an attempt to eradicate the discussion of black history, there's, there is nearly 10% of the American public who think it's okay to use force to try to stop that. And one in 12 believe it's justified to use force to preserve the rights of whites. Now, driven by the tropes undergirding the most prominent far-right conspiracies, anti-Semitism is also on the rise, particularly amongst young people. One new survey found that about one in five Americans believe in some of the classical anti-Semitic tropes. It also found that the age gap that used to exist in anti-Semitism had vanished, with people under 30 holding anti-Semitic beliefs nearly at the same level as those over 30. That's a market change. That has shrunk dramatically in the past few years. At the same time, Four white nationalist themes of white dispossession are also rising in popularity. Another survey found that over a third of respondents felt that America's changing demographics are a threat to white Americans and their culture and values. It also found that seven out of 10 Republicans said they believe in the core ideas that constitute the white nationalist great replacement theory an idea that has been circulated and popularized by many of the recent white nationalist murderers that we've seen commit acts of racist terror in this country. It also found that 44% of Americans agree that the U.S. seems to be headed towards civil war in the near future. We are unraveling the community at a rapid rate. At the same time, white nationalist propaganda increased last year, hate crimes were up, particularly against Asian Americans and the Jewish community, and violence like last year's murders against the LGBTQ bar in Colorado Springs and the supermarket in Bluff, Buffalo's black community remain a threat. At the same time, this, these ideas have moved significantly into the mainstream. Last year, we put out a report called Margin, uh, Reaching the Mainstream, a national survey of, far, of the far right in state legislatures. In that report, we identified an astonishing 875 state legislators around the country involved in far right groups. These include militia groups, COVID denial groups, anti Semitic groups, uh, you name it, a whole range of them, 875. To put that in perspective, that's nearly 11% of all state legislators and 21% of Republican state legislators, spread across all 50 states. I think it's 
important to remember that after the assault on the Capitol, we had plenty of anecdotes about this threat. This was the first attempt to try to capture how far this stuff had spread into the mainstream. That it was no longer confined to the backwood musters or clattering around in some dark corner of the internet. Increasingly, these ideas are normalized and mainstreamed by elected officials. Of the 875 lawmakers included in the report, 575 were up for re-election last year. Of those, 190 had no challenger whatsoever. 230 of them didn't have a Democratic challenger, and they had a winning percentage in the end of 95.68%. That's a winning percentage higher than the average incumbent. So while a lot have talked about the beginning of the end, the data here certainly doesn't suggest it. Rather, it suggests it's metastasizing in our state legislatures and impacting public policy. We looked at the public policy in that and found that it is, in fact, both a national problem, as you can see from the data here. These are the different state legislatures, and you can find this available on our website. You can see if your legislative district is, in fact, included in that. But we also found that rather than this being idiosyncratic, it's helped create a national network of these folks, tying together legislators, sharing ideas about public policies, and impacting public policy. They also had a serious legislative impact. In the course of the, the, the two years we looked at, they introduced 963 bills, including everything from don't say gay style policies to don't say racism to uh, to don't let me don't force me to get vaccinated or wear a mask to attacks on women's reproductive rights to immigrants rights to attacks on the LGBTQIA community and more of those 963 100 became law this is the core that's introducing the problematic bills that we see around the, the country and they're continuing to move forward this year was they were equally successful of the 23 elections uh, that they had this year they won 22 of those races. The only ones they lost were they lost in the primaries. Oh, they lost one in the primary, one in the general. So it is a problem. And, you know, while the adage goes that the states are the laboratories of democracy, however, I think it's important to remember that left unchecked, rising far-right activity at the state level combined with these nascent networks of legislators and an unending fuel of online misinformation threatens to turn our states into the crucibles that corrode our democracy rather than being the building blocks of it. Now, I'm sad to say that it also goes all the way down, that it, the rot doesn't stop at the state legislatures. In fact, it goes to state offices like Secretary of State and Attorney General, elections officials, county officials, school boards, and even county sheriffs. The rot runs deep. And in fact, you know, they're now trying to recruit sheriffs to help them enforce their edicts. So-called constitutional sheriffs are becoming an increasingly common phenomenon around this country. In fact, there are several hundred, including some right here in this area. All is not lost. The efforts that, that we've engaged in to work to counter them have a real impact. When a group of constitutional sheriffs showed up in Illinois recently, earlier this spring, um, they thought they'd get 60, 70, 80 sheriffs to their event. 
By the time we were done exposing their work, they had five show up. When they came to when they came to Minnesota, they scheduled a nine city tour. They, scheduled, they thought again they would get dozens and dozens of sheriffs to their events. Let's let Richard Mack, the founder of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, tell us exactly how many people they got out to their event and why they they had so few people turn out to their event. Two sheriffs, two sheriffs in nine days uh, came to our event. Uh, they were the two that I guess weren't scared of the state uh, and threatening them if they um, come to the training that they might be attacked or they might have their certification as a peace officer revoked. Uh, all of that came from Devin Burghardt sending letters to every uh, email to every sheriff and a lot of public officials, including the governor and the attorney general of the state. Uh, that state is run uh, by more communists than any other state in the union. Uh, and it's a, it's a sad state of affairs. To be fair, it wasn't just me. It was my entire. It was the entire IHR staff who did that. So I can't take all the credit. But that's the kind of work you can do when you have effective, organized uh, research and you deploy it in such a way that you can have an impact. Um, but this is in the end. You know, we are at a important crossroads. The disturbing trends and data we've talked about today didn't happen spontaneously. In fact, it's the bitter fruit of far-right organizing and mobilization efforts over the past 40 years. In fact, what we see in many respects is layer upon layer upon layer creating a mountain in front of us. So you have you have the militia movement, the Tea Party, the anti-immigrant movement, QAnon, COVID denial, and on and on and on, creating a mountain that makes it harder for us to get to the promised land to get to a vision of a beloved community that allows us to live out our ideals as a truly multiracial, multiethnic, pluralistic democracy. That's the kind of work that we've got to do. We've got to climb that mountain. We've got to work to undercut that mountain, and we've got to rebuild those efforts to, to work to counter this. As Lenny often says, what we're engaged in is nothing less than strategic defense of the Enlightenment, and we're, we've got a big fight ahead of us for the next 40 years. The first 40 years of IRHR have been amazing in terms of the impact we have. I'm hoping that with all of your support, the next 40 years will also be make it so we can truly live out the ideals that the Institute was founded upon. Thank you all. Reminders, we, uh, if you have questions, please start forming a line up here along the wall there. When you have your question, please come to the microphone. Speak into the microphone so that people can hear you and also so that it's picked up for the recording. Just a reminder to be polite when people don't speak into the microphone. And if you would say, please speak in the microphone, as opposed to, speak up, we can't hear you. That would be great. Um, one question per person, so everybody's had a chance to ask their question. And again, we'll be monitoring questions in the chat for those of you who are watching us uh, live streaming. And finally, please, no speeches. Um, you may have something very interesting to say, but we really do want to hear from our speaker today. So. I was pretty much unaware of the relationship between right-wing propagandists and anti-vaxxers. So since we may at some point uh, 
have to ask people to vaccinate for some future unknown malady. Could you talk a little bit about how that became part of the right wing? And um, I, I just didn't I didn't associate the right wing with anti-vaxxers. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. It's a really important question, not only for the future, but also for the present, because there's some new disturbing poll, uh, data showing that the rate of immunization amongst children, particularly around things like measles and other things, has fallen to, to record low levels. So we've got a, you know, we've got a real problem with that in the here and now, not just in the future. But what's happened is there have there has been a segment of the far right who's always been kind of anti-vax. Right. Um, going back to the 90s, you saw it appear in the health supplement of a publication like the tabloid, the spotlight uh, and other places. So it's been around for a long time. It was really more popularized by a couple of figures, uh, figures like Alex Jones and his radio show Infowars and um, another gentleman by the name of Mike Adams, who runs a massive complex of organizations uh, anti-vaxxer organizations called the Health Ranger. Um, in the c course of the pandemic, many of the organizations that were uh, anti-vax that had tended to lean a little bit more to the left, at least publicly facing, they all headed to the far right. So groups like uh, RFK Jr.'s Children's Health Defense and Del Bigtree's group, uh, Highwire, all of them seized on the opportunity during the pandemic um, to really latch on to the conspiracies. And that was re was really key for them to take on that far-right character, right? That they saw that there was a secret cabal working behind the scenes to, to spread, to uh, create this so-called bioweapon that was COVID-19. Um, and that the, that vaccines were either being used to implant us with, um, the list goes on and on from uh, from magnets to RFID chips to uh, all to the mark of the beast and all kinds of other things. So it really became the driving force for the mobilization on the ground that we saw that led to things like the the armed occupation of the legislature in Michigan um, and the uh, and a number of other armed occupation of state legislatures during the height of the anti-lockdown phases. Uh, and they they've continued to mobilize around that and chip away at that, relying almost entirely upon those conspiracies. They change and morph over time, but it's still those same kind of anti-Semitic core ideas that they use to, to further uh, propel them moving forward. So it's a challenge we're continuing to deal with. We're working with pro-vaccine groups like Voices for Vaccines and other national organizations working to counter it to help them understand um, both where the new threats are and um, the latest angles for this stuff. Um, but it's a, a new element to our work that we're constantly we've been paying attention to really significantly throughout the pandemic. It's a great question. Thank you. A lot of what you've referred to uh, monitoring the far right groups seems to be similar to the uh, endless stream of stuff I get from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Do you coordinate with them at all? We talk with it. We talk with SBLC. Sure. Yeah, I think we you know, we tend to be a bit. Why we cast a little bit wider of a net uh, in terms of our focus on the far right. Uh, I think we also tend to be a little bit more um, 
because they're a huge organization. It takes, you know, like trying to turn the Titanic on a dime. They take a little while to get to places. We kind of, our role has always been to help organizations see other organizations like that, see where to go. Um, so, you know, it was after the work we did around the anti-immigrant movement, you know, two years later, we were, were, pr- were glad to see SPLC get into the fight. Um, we were glad to see them, uh, you know, at the tail end of the Tea Party stuff, start to engage around it. But yeah, we, you know, I think their stuff they do is important. Uh, and we worked with them most recently. We did a, an interesting piece with them uh, on that you'll find in their newsletter, I think in earlier this year or late last year, um, where they looked at the um, financial transactions in Bitcoin that went from white nationalists to uh, a far-right paramilitary organization called the People's Rights Network. And so we helped them. We identified the source. We identified the location. They helped track the source. So yeah, we work with them at times too. Yeah. I was interested in your map that had the actually two tones, red and orange colors on it. And I think the area here in terms of select legislators was orange and it was a broader space. I don't know how hard it is to get back to that slide and to um, look at that, but I was surprised by there. Okay. Well, ah, now I'm up closer. I see it's the Missouri that's orange, but what's the difference between orange and red? Uh, multiples. Um, what do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I meant that you, that there was a uh, for Missouri. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look. Yeah, to be perfectly honest, I don't recall. I think, as I recall, the the Lord, do you recall? Was it that there were multiple legislators in that district that were were members? Yes, that's what it okay. was. Yeah, so there are multiple legislators in that district, legislative in, district, both in red and orange. Uh, well, it's red; it's singular. In orange, it's multiple. In multiple. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. It's a great question. Hey, I'm kind of interested in identifying folks in the Kansas legislature. Can you can you tell us who um, is is involved in this in Kansas? And is this at all related to the fight against Obamacare and Medicaid expansion in the nine states that still are opposed? Sadly, off the top of my head, I can't think of those names. They're all listed in the report. I would encourage you to go read that. Um, But I think there is still a, you know, that there is that core, even going back to the anti-immigrant movement, right, of which Angela is quite familiar. There's there was a lot of efforts around that stuff to mobilize at the legislative and policymaking level. And they've continued to use that um, drive to both keep their legislators in place uh, and to further push policy. What's different now is that these legislators now have a larger pipeline where they're getting fed this misinformation. Right. So it's not only the Facebook groups to which they belong. It's also more groups beyond just groups like ALEC, groups like the straight state freedom caucuses and others helping to prepare model far right legislation to do things like, you know, create detention camps for immigrants and to do, uh, you know, to to increase, you know, to completely obliterate women's reproductive freedom and on and on and on. 
Um, so there are more there are more of those types of things than we saw back in the day. What we're seeing now is just a multiplicity of the same kind of tactics that we saw emerge in those early Tea Party days. I, I'm interested in uh, what the effect the next presidential election might have on all this. Some have said that if uh, if Joe Biden wins, that that might arrest some of this. Uh, some of this increased activity by the far right, the way conspiracy theories have taken off. That's a great question. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, yeah. Yeah. You comment on that. Um, I think the data right now suggests a couple of things. It suggests that if Biden wins, we're going to see a continuation of this and a, and a, you know, a, a continued entrenchment of it. And in fact, if Biden wins, we'll see this will get worse. Right. We'll see what we'll see is not worse in terms of overall numbers, but we'll see it in terms of its hardening its base. Right. It becomes more what explicitly white nationalist. Right. It takes up a more explicitly white nationalist character, um, you know, and begins to reshape politics. If Trump wins, I think it means that he's got shock troops on the ground to be able to do things, to put into action things that he's outlined, like detention camps for immigrants or suspected immigrants, uh, or to lay out the kind of vision that groups like Heritage Action have put forward in their um, Agenda 2025, which is a fundamental remaking of our governmental system from top to bottom in a very dangerous and anti-democratic fashion. So those are the two things we look forward to. Yeah. One of, one of the two. Yeah, one of the two. So we're going to have our work cut out for us no matter what. You know, I, this is a fight that is a marathon, not a sprint. We've got essentially the next 50 years ahead of us as we continue to go through these, you know, these racial and de demographic changes and whether or not we get a chance to live out our, you know, democratic ideals or we become something that looks more akin to Victor Orban's Hungary or something worse. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, Devin, good morning. Danny, morning. Following up on that question, if you could talk more about how um, in the past we saw a dynamic where um, when uh, far right figures gain more power in the mainstream, it would tend to diminish activity at the paramilitary and grassroots level because they saw that some of their ideals were realized. But now it seems like there is we've reached a bit of a tipping point where, as you were describing with Trump, instead of Trump's election dampening down the activity on the far right because people feel like they finally achieved something, we're at if you think it is the case that we're at a different kind of a synergistic level where the actual election of Trump will actually make things much worse as opposed to co-opting the right and taking the wind out of its sails. I do think I do think that there's that synergy going on, which is different than it used to be. As Lenny wrote in his book, um, back when Ronald Reagan was elected, um, the leading publication of the far right during the period was a, a anti-Semitic tabloid called The Spotlight. When Reagan was elected, its publication numbers tanked. Right. We saw we saw a bit of a decrease in, during that period uh, and a change in movement dynamics. In fact, a lot of them at that period were thinking, you know, were, were, were 
moving on to other things. It changed the dynamics and it animated the mainstream part of the movement. Now what we're seeing is that synergy where both the shooters and the mainstreamers are active at the same time, where we can see, you know, incidents like, um, Buffalo and El Paso and so many other horrific tragedies mobilized by the far right happen at the same time we see them making these legislative impacts. So it very much is synergistic now rather than than uh, opposing in terms of the relationship between the far right and legislators. I do think, however, if they, you know, if they win or if they lose, there will be, um, as there was after 2020, kind of a reassessment of what happens, you know, whether or not electoralism is at all worthwhile, you know, whether or not they they continue to go to the ballot box or if it's just time to grab the bullet box. Right. That's the conversations that they have internally. They have that after 2020. And we anticipate while we don't have a crystal ball, we anticipate that we'll I think we'll see more of that conversation happen after the 2024 elections. Um. <clears throat> What are some ways uh, that we can help uh, combat and sort of um, change the conversation around the fascist groups and far-right groups that are really attacking the trans community right now? That's a that's a, another important question. Um, I think the most important thing to understand is that uh, when folks are attacking the trans community, Understand that is it is a stepping stone to attacking all other communities. We've seen that repeatedly, where groups like the Proud Boys and others, when they start by attacking the, the trans community, if they feel that there's a green light there, they're going to start attacking other communities, right? They'll start attacking, you know, they'll they'll start going after the NAACP, or they'll start going after, you know, the Unitarians, or they'll start finding other targets to go after, right? They they will systematically use the what they talk, often refer to as the lowest hanging fruits. I, I'm sorry they used that term, but um, they will use that um, to gauge a community's um, receptivity to their ideas, right? And violence against a trans community is not merely a act of violence, but it is a way to gauge how a community is going to be receptive to the rest of their ideas. So it means that when the trans community is under attack, we're all under attack. When, you know, when any of us are under attack, we're all under attack. So we need to be better about making sure that we're there, making sure that folks are have the safe space to continue to live their lives in the way they they see fit. Uh, and that's a challenge because it's a challenge today. Because there's so much more activity than there was when I started doing this work 30 years ago. The level of activity is orders of magnitude larger, and it's almost impossible for us at the Institute to keep up with all of that's going on. So what it requires is community members making sure that they're vigilant about what they see on the ground, that they're building those networks of support and solidarity, and that they're standing for one another when we're under that kind of assault. It's a great question. Thank I hope that answers some of it. Uh, what do you think of the impact of the so-called intellectual segment of the far right, their uh, effectiveness, their potential danger, such as the Claremont Institute? For example, Christopher Rufo, I believe, was a fellow yep. of the Claremont Institute. 
Yeah, there are, you know, it's important to think about these groups as not only having the kind of shock troops on the ground, but also the think tanks that help incubate these ideas and help um, help figure out how to mainstream them. So that's a really important point. Um, groups like Claremont and Heritage and others are really important about that. Not only did was Christopher Rufo, the guy who gave us the anti-CRT and anti-trans stuff, um, a Claremont fellow, but they now have a program of uh, fellows that are constitutional sheriffs. Uh, and so they are, in fact, have taken on, while they have this mainstream respectability, they've taken on fostering the idea that a county sheriff can come and intercede um, between federal, state, or local officials trying to enforce any law they don't like, and they can nullify it by having the, the sheriff there and their posse um, simply say no. That's the kind of things that Claremont now is promoting, those ideas that once were confined to anti-Semitic groups like Danny wrote about in the posse are now, you know, being lifted up by groups like Claremont. So, yeah, that's a, a, both a sign of where those groups have a role to play in terms of mainstreaming that stuff, but also they have a role in terms of taking that stuff, those ideas from the dustbin of history and moving them again more closer into mainstream I, you know, mainstream conversations so far that are, you know, they've had, I think, conversations with two or 300 sheriffs who identify with that constitutional sheriff stuff. Talk about the role of the media in uh, all of what you're talking about, including what kind of changes in the structure of the media might uh, help reduce this threat. Well, you know, the media is, uh, you know, what's happened with far, the far right in terms of their media ecosystem is that, you know, for decades, one of the toolkits we had in our arsenal in terms of fighting the far right was the ability to name and shame, right? The ability to call out people for their connections to white nationalists. And that made a huge difference, right? That changed in 2016. When a certain person who shall remain nameless came in and made, you know, and was shameless and taught the right that shame was no longer anything to be feared and said that they could go ahead and do whatever they wanted to do. And so many in our on our side of the street moved into a period away from naming and shaming to a period of deplatforming, to getting people kicked off mainstream platforms like YouTube, Facebook, etc. Right. That period was was successful. That period is also over because the far right, as a result of that, has now built up their own ecosystem. Then now they have their own version of YouTube and they have their own version of Twitter and they have their own version of Facebook. And they have an entire ecosystem where they're not talking to any of the rest of us at all. And if we're not paying attention to it, we don't have any idea what those conversations are. Because they don't happen in our communities. We only see them as they've been sanitized and buffed and polished and brought out to, you know, into the light of day and are trying to influence more and more Americans. What's going on in those in those ecosystems is a completely different situation. And so that's part of why it's, you know, for, as far as it goes, it means we've got to be better understanding how they're using that and also be wary about where our media ecosystem is in terms of how we get our message out and how we communicate and how we're trying to reach people, right? Our One of our cores has always been trying to reach people where they are. Part of the reason we do all this research 
is to identify where people are vulnerable to recruitment and try, try to get to those spaces before the far right does. It takes a lot of work, but that's our goal, right? Our goal is to get to them before the far right does and to prevent them from becoming more like the folks we talked about today. Oh, wow. Um, I work for a multinational corporation with uh, facilities all around the world. And uh, so far, the issue of, of what we're talking about is kind of a don't ask, don't tell uh, conversation between people, coworkers. Mm. Uh, do you have any recommendations on how to approach multinational corporations and large corporations in the U.S.? It's, it's a worldwide issue, by the way. The uh, to essentially cause them to kind of figure out a way to diminish some of this because I I don't think it's to their benefit to have this uh, working for them. Well. I'd say it's a little like this. Here'd be a way to talk about it. Um, in that kind of, you know, in what we call middle American nationalism, which is undergirding all of this we see up here today, right? That's the core construct of their ideas. Multinational corporations are part of the problem. They're up here, right? Along with the so-called elites. They're targets of the middle Americans. They think that the elites and the multinationals work in collusion with those below to squeeze white middle Americans in the middle, right? So they are very much the targets of these days of the far right. So ask Disney, ask Budweiser what it's like to be on the other end of this stuff, right? They know that it's a problem, uh, and that problem is only going to get worse unless they deal with it, right? And so they're going to have to face this one at, at some point. There's going to be a day of reckoning and they're going to have to deal with this. So, you know, they've got to find the time to deal with it as messy as it might be, because eventually the far right's going to come for them, too. So talk about the international uh, perspective on this. You know, with with uh, now um, uh, the son of Marcos is back in power in the Philippines. Um, you got to barbarist in 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 um hungary uh et cetera et cetera sure i mean i could talk more specifically about the european context because we've had a lot more work there but um you know the rise of the far right in places like hungary poland sweden sweden the netherlands where you know a long time islamophobic activist Gert wilders was just uh elected um you know, these kind of things we thought were, you know, we're long told were impossible. Uh, we were long told that this stuff could never happen, that no longer were we in a place in this world where those kind of things would happen. Sadly, that's very much not the case, that we are in a rapidly changing uh, political context where those kind of things are rapidly interchanged and we can no longer be live under the illusion that it can't happen here or it can't happen anywhere. The record is too clear about that. This kind of stuff has happened elsewhere where that we thought it couldn't. And all of the data suggests that unless we are incredibly vigilant about this stuff, unless we gear up and build a movement that lasts for the next 50 years, that this problem is going to continue to be with us over and over again. And the mountain that we see ahead of us is going to become Mount Everest-like. It's going to become harder and harder to climb the longer we wait.
I have another question, actually. So the title of your organization is Institute for Research. So I'm curious about what your research agenda is at the organization in terms of what your priorities are, what your staffing looks like, and then how that's actually implemented on the ground. It's a great question. Uh, at the Institute, we do, two, we do a couple of different approaches, right? Our first approach is to cast a wide net, to have a broad-based understanding of what the far right looks like across the country, right? That's the only way we know and are able to spot trends and to be able to spot new developments uh, and to be able to do that. After we do that, then we operationalize that by burrowing in on areas that we think are particularly important. So over, the la over this last year, for instance, we spent a lot of time engaged in a couple of big projects. One was the legislative project to identify far-right state legislators and work with people to help uh, expose those and lift those up. The second was the constitutional sheriff's uh, program, because we thought that, you know, the ability of sheriffs to, um, you know, ignore the Constitution, to ignore due process, and to engage in that kind of attacks on civil rights um, was really problematic. And, you know, particularly at a time when law enforcement is already, relations are already strained that we needed to take that on. So we did. And we've been dogging groups like CSPOA everywhere they go across the country. Uh, and a third project we dealt with a lot was a, a follow-up from our work during the pandemic around a group called the People's Rights Network. Any of you heard of PRN? They're a group founded by Ammon Bundy. You know that name? Ammon Bundy, the guy who was known for all the, uh, all the big standoffs over the last several years. Well, anyway, during the course of the pandemic, Bundy, and his, Bundy built up an organization that grew to over 40,000 people, including a chapter here in 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 Missouri and in Kansas. Um, that organization was responsible for hundreds of disruptions and protests, including the shutdowns of three different hospitals out in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, in the course of that work, um, one of those hospitals, because they'd had threats to um, their doctors, to the nurses, to other public health officials, they, the hospital went into lockdown and People had to be had to be diverted by medevac helicopters away from the hospital because of the armed protests at this hospital. Um, that that hospital said that they'd had enough, so they led the charge to file a defamation suit against that against Bundy and the People's Rights Network. The institute, because of our work in terms of exposing the group, uh, was able to then um, act as a as consultants on the case. Uh, and I was brought in as an expert witness in July at the at the defamation trial. I testified for over six hours on the stand. And by the time the two week trial was over, the jury brought back a fifty two point four million dollar judgment against Bundy and PRN. Two weeks ago, I was scheduled. I, I flew to Boise uh, on my way to D.C. because I was scheduled to testify at Ammon Bundy's contempt trial. Bundy didn't ever showed up. Instead, in the middle of the night, he and his family packed up and fled in the middle of the night. He's now in hiding. He's left the state of Idaho, and many have now called this the biggest legal victory in Idaho since the defeat over the Aryan Nations uh, and the defeat of that Aryan Nations compound. And in fact, Friday night, as we were getting, as we were winding down, I got a note from an attorney uh, there, uh, there that said that um, just that day, this last Friday, they had taken possession of the of the home 
that the Bundys fled from and is now in the proper in the hands of St. Luke's. Uh, and so that victory is now, you know, now all but assured, as is the crumbling of that organization. So that's our goal, right? That's what we do. We cast out wide net, figure out where the big problems are, and then burrow down and try to, you know, do as detailed a dive as we possibly can. We've got a small staff, right? We've got, you know, three staffers, right? Um, but we're, you know, we're working hard to do it. And some amazing volunteers and board members and others who, you know, who help keep us doing the work and keep us on the right track. So that's what we got. And that's what we're going to continue to do as long as we can. Just a quick note about next week's presentation. The topic is suicide, what to say and not to say to lost survivors. So that'll be presented by Mickey and Bonnie Swade, their founders here in the Kansas City metro area of the Suicide Awareness Support Services Organization. And also Marsha Epstein, who is a therapist and suicidologist in Lawrence, will be joining us. And she's going to talk about the challenges and how to comfort a suicide loss survivor. So we encourage you to join us then. Thank you. Hope to see you next week. Thanks for listening to the All Souls Forum. The All Souls Forum is a production of the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church of Kansas City, Missouri. And now stay tuned for Jazz in the Afternoon, followed by the Happy Hour at 3 p.m. and the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. All right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio.